0: Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.
1: So thank you all for uh, coming to this talk. Um, Let me, before I start, state that please do not be alarmed. Your phone or your computer does not have a ticking time bomb implanted in it. You're you're fine. This this image is just uh, created for illustrating certain concepts in uh, hardware security. We actually borrowed this uh, from Scientific American magazine. Um, And we've been using this image in all the talks, especially those that we give in front of uh, potential research sponsors, because apparently it turns out that when people are scared, the checkbooks come out and uh, they tend to be more generous. So, um, but jokes aside, uh, let me, before, before I start my talk, let me acknowledge uh, our sponsors, our research sponsors. First, obviously, the uh, internal sponsors, Center for Cybersecurity, NYU Abu Dhabi, and uh, our external sponsors from industry, Global Foundries, uh, Semiconductor Research Corporation, from the UAE government, uh, ATIC, who are now called Mubadala Technology, and uh, from the US government, uh, National Science Foundation, and uh, Department of Defense in particular, Army Research Office, and uh, DARPA. <clears throat> we're grateful for the support. So my talk uh, is centered around this big question, do you trust your chip? And uh, I have to acknowledge Professor Sunil Kumar, who is a, the uh, name father for this, for this title, uh, when we were working on a workshop together, he came up with this title seven, eight years back and I've been sticking to this title ever since. And uh, because it's catchy, it captures everything. Um, So we'll be be questioning our trust in chips and all the devices that have chips in it, these smart devices around you that are interconnected, right? We take them for granted, but can we really trust them? And uh, hopefully by the end of this presentation, uh, you'll understand where my paranoia is coming from. So here is how I organize this talk. This uh, line of research, uh, chips and trust and security, it falls under hardware security, and it's one of the soft fields in cybersecurity. I'll talk about what this field had been about about up until recently, as well as what has been about recently. So I'll contrast past and present in hardware security. Then I'll raise a big question. I'll talk about why we're questioning trust in chips and all these smart electronic devices, and more importantly, I'll talk about why we're questioning this trust today. How come nobody was questioning this trust 20 years back? Because these chips have been around for decades. Um, then I'll once I share my paranoia with you and I'm convinced that this is an important problem, then we'll talk about can we design chips that are trustworthy? What are the things that we need to do? And in particular, I'll talk about the efforts that we've been taking here in my Abu Dhabi in our labs, uh, and I'll talk in particular about this, this chip that says NYUAD on it, that we call a trusted chip. And finally, I'll talk about other efforts um, out there. So, hardware security. Before getting into hardware security, let me take a big step back and talk about cybersecurity. Uh, let me first say that there is this field called cryptography. It's the use of codes and ciphers. So whenever two parties are communicating in secret, They don't want others to tap into this communication, and by listening to the conversation, they don't want these other parties to understand the secret content of the communication. So people use codes, people use keys to encrypt and decrypt things, and the whole field is referred to as cryptography. This field goes back all the way to ancient Egyptians. Apparently, uh, they used to use, in certain hieroglyphs, uh, very basic forms of cryptography, not, not for secure communication, but rather for the fun of it. They, they use this for creating puzzles and amusement for, for each other. And then the ancient Greeks, uh, the Spartans, they use these simple mechanical device called um, this, there is In this device, what they do is they, they wrap a parchment around the rod, and then they write this secret message on the rod, on this parchment, and then they unwrap, take the paper out and then they add random characters around the secret message. So when somebody looks at this parchment, this paper, they would see garbled message. But on, when the recipient gets this parchment, they would actually wrap it around the rod with the same diameter as the one that, that you use to create the, the secret message. So this is how the generals used to communicate during the times of war uh, in ancient Greek times. Apparently, you know, wars, uh, bring out the best in people. So this is the famous uh, Enigma machine that was used during World War II by the German to, to uh, encrypt messages. And then you know people came up with mathematical definitions, theorems, proofs, algorithms that got implemented in software to encrypt and decrypt messages and uh, in the context of wireless communication to ensure secure communication. And finally, to do real-time, fast, encryption and decryption on huge amounts of data, uh, these crypto operations were directly implemented on chips that perform these uh, encryption and decryption operations. And we refer to them as crypto chips. So these crypto chips, you would see their applications in smart cards, in your TV set boxes. These boxes allow you to watch the channels that you pay for, right? Ideally. And then there's this other field called cryptanalysis. Um, this field is basically, it studies the hidden aspects of systems. It's a fancier way of saying breaking codes. So these two fields have evolved hand in hand. And this field also goes back more than 1,000 years back. This was the first manuscript from this region. Um, first manuscript about decrypting uh, cipher messages. So it was actually talking about very uh, basic forms of frequency analysis. And then people have done also sort of uh, mathematical and frequency analysis, again, during World War II, the famous uh, bomb machine by Turing and Watchman to break Enigma codes, breaking of wireless encryption protocols and algorithms, in particular web. And finally, uh, people directly hacking into hardware and trying to steal or manipulate on-chip assets, on-chip secrets. Whatever you see on the slide right now is the hardware component. Basically, it's the hardware security field. On the left side, we're talking about defenses. On the right side, we're talking about attacks. And these things are really iterative in nature. So in in this field, uh, the focus is on the chips that perform these these operations. And one example is the encryption decryption operation. The, The chip basically takes a plain text, which is your secret message, and it encrypts it into so-called ciphertext. So the idea is, when you communicate this ciphertext, even if somebody sees that ciphertext, they won't be able to make any sense of it because you turned your plaintext into the ciphertext in a mathematically secure manner. So the attacker, the goal, is obviously to reveal your secret message. So one way to do it is to go from ciphertext to plaintext, which is difficult, and I'll explain why. And the other, uh, thing that the attacker do is to somehow get a hold of that key, because this encryption and decryption, everything is based on this secret key. So it turns out that it's very difficult uh, to retrieve the plain text from the ciphertext. It's very difficult to just study the input-output behavior of this chip to break codes, because simply because these operations are mathematically proven to be secure and direct, they're directly implemented in hardware. So instead, what attackers do is target the physical implementation of the chip rather than the input output behavior. So, and this is so called the side channel behavior of chips. When chips are running, certain operations are slightly faster, certain operations consume slightly more battery power, certain operations emit certain patterns of electromagnetic waves. So instead of looking at the input-top behavior, the ciphertext and plaintext, people look at this behavior and try to figure out what's happening inside the chip. This is a picture, actually, from our lab. We have this setup that enables us to look at the power consumption behavior of the chips to be able to deduce about, you know, things about what's happening inside the chip. And if we do a rigorous enough analysis, we hope to recover the secret key on the chip Based on this information. And similar analysis can be done by looking at the timing behavior, by looking at the electromagnetic emission behavior of the chip as well. All this is called, um, all these efforts are referred to as side channel attacks. The other form of side channels is basically to misuse the infrastructures within within the chip that is there for a good reason, for a good purpose. So these chips are so complex that when they fail, it's very difficult to pinpoint the problems. So that's why designers put in some infrastructures to enable this debugging or testing operations, and that's how, with this great access, they can say, oh, this must have gone wrong with my chip when it failed. Access is great for testing and debugging, but access is a terrible idea when it comes to security, because security requires really restricted access. So you see where I'm going with this? People have abused this infrastructure inside the chips, the test infrastructure, and they extracted or manipulated on-chip secrets, on-chip assets by leveraging or exploiting this infrastructure. So practical applications of these, what happened? Um, a Few years back when Xbox 360 came out, it took only four months for the attackers to hack into the platform by, as I said, exploiting the test infrastructure on the console. And this way, they were able to play pirated software. They were able to even turn the computational, turn the console, gaming console, into a computational platform for the fun of it. So it took only four months. And here's the thing about hackers, and I'm choosing my words carefully because the last thing I want is to annoy hackers. Um, When they break into things, when they hack certain devices, What they wanna do is share that with everybody else and invite everybody else to do the same. Uh, So what they do is they come up with crystal clear set of instructions and they publish them on on some website and they invite everybody else to hack into Xbox 360. As a result, this goes viral and then it's a huge revenue loss for for the company. Another example is the hacking of the satellite TV uh, receivers. Again, people have shown that they could misuse the infrastructure, the test infrastructure on these receivers to manipulate the on-chip information to be able to watch any channel that they'd like without paying for them. And again, once they figure out how it's done, they publish the step-by-step instructions on a website, and they invite everybody else to do the same. Again, huge revenue loss for the content providers. So... Up until very recently, about a decade ago or so, this was mainly what hardware security field was about. It was focusing mostly on these crypto chips that had some sort of secret on-chip assets and people on the attack side leveraging all sorts of side channels to be able to extract or manipulate this secret information on these chips. Recently though, the focus has widened from only crypto chips, which are your smart cards and all that, to all the chips. And the underlying reason is attributed to this thing called supply chain vulnerabilities. I'll explain what these vulnerabilities are, but just so that we understand, it's not only crypto chips anymore that people are worried about, it's rather all the chips out there. And the implications of this is serious, because if you think about it, You would find these chips in all applications around you. You would find chips in your phones, in your computers, in your cars, in airplanes, in uh, nuclear plants, water systems, medical devices, safety and security critical applications. These chips are everywhere. So once our trust is compromised in these chips, then we're talking about our trust being compromised in all applications that pretty much control our lives one way or another. So next question. Why are we questioning this trust, and why today? For that, I'll uh, tell you a little story. It's a true story, not made up. I'll talk about a real company. It's a chip design company that I'm sure all of you know about. And I'll talk about how this chip design company used to design their chips in the 80s, before the globalization era, and how they're designing their chips today. So this chip design company used to have their designers, chip designers, design their chips uh, in San, uh, in Bay Area, California. And uh, when I say chip design, chip design is just using a bunch of software tools. You start with a paper-based design, you have your microprocessor here, cache here, buses, inputs, outputs, slowly the high-level Uh, Design information is transformed into something that the fab will use to fabricate your chips So eventually you need to know how the transistors will be interconnected, right? But all these steps are software steps and all the uh, Things that are used to represent design are soft electronic files. So people use their computers in uh, Bay Area to design these chips and once the chip is ready to be fabricated the fabrication also used to take place in the same place, which is the Bay Area. And then once you fabricate the chips, you know, things go wrong, certain chips are defective, you need to screen them out. So they need to go through a testing process. That process also used to happen in the Bay Area. And then once the silicon is ready, you need to put it in a package, a black package with the pin sticking out. That's called packaging and assembly. Again, this step used to be done in the same location, Bay Area, which is where the headquarters of of this company was, California. And then once the products are ready, they're deployed, they were deployed all around the globe, supporting various applications. So this was 30, 40 years back. Of course, things changed in the meantime, and there are two uh, significant changes. Number one, the designs became way more complex. Today, you want your cell phone to be able to make, receive phone calls, send, receive SMS. You wanna be able to check your mails. You wanna, do, you wanna play videos. You wanna do online banking. You want all sorts of applications running on your cell phone. So you want the hardware, the chip, to support this variety of applications, which means you need an expertise, you need a diverse set of expertise to design one chip that supports it all, right? So the chips today are way more complex compared to the chips 30, 40 years back. As a result, it's not a small single team that's designing an entire chip today. It's tens of teams working together to design one chip. That's problem number one. Problem number two, when the time comes, you finish your design, you need to get it fabricated. But to own your own chip fabrication facilities, you need five to $10 billion. So more and more chip design companies are going fabless. In other words, they're using third-party fabrication facilities to get their chips fabricated. So because of these two reasons, there was a huge shift in design paradigm and globalization came to the rescue. People used more and more outsourcing of these steps. So this same company, same design company, what they're doing now is, instead of designing everything in California, they're going to other companies in Europe, India and China and buying design blocks from there. So microprocessor block, they go to the experts in the UK, they take it from there. Other blocks, they go to India and China, etc. Once the design is ready, the fabrication happens by a third-party uh, company in South Korea. Testing now happens in Taiwan. Packaging assembly happens in uh, China. But the headquarters of the company is still in the Bay Area. And once the products are ready, they're deployed just like in the past, to so all the, app, all the uh, devices out there around the globe. Any idea who this chip design company is? Not Samsung? Not Intel. Intel is one of the few examples, few chip design companies that hold on to their uh, fabs. Apple. Okay. You shouldn't have answered. <laughs> Apple. So it's, it's actually Apple. So I thought, Uh, you would like to know more about your iPhone. So that's why I picked this example. So as you can see, um, the design and manufacturing flow is highly distributed today. In the past, it used to be centralized. Everything used to be done in one controlled facilities under the control of a few people. But now, single chip, uh, the operations, the, the process on a single chip, basically spans across the globe. Various teams, different companies, um, it's very interesting because up until, this, this slide is slightly outdated in the sense that up until a couple of years ago, uh, Apple used to use the fabs of Samsung, their main competitors. So this is a very interesting relationship. And uh, this changed in the last couple of years. They're now using uh, another fab, uh, TSMC, so Taiwanese uh, chip fabrication facility. Still third party, but they're no longer using Samsung fabrication. So because the flow is highly distributed today, people are concerned about a variety of things. And these are basically uh, main concerns. So for instance, we're not only talking about counterfeit pills or watches or bags, but we're talking about counterfeit chips today. That's one problem. We're talking about all sorts of piracy problems, obviously, because information is changing hands, right? Uh, We're talking about reverse engineering, and we're talking about Trojans in the context of hardware. So I'm sure you're you're familiar with uh, software counterpart. At some point in your life, your computer must have been infected with software Trojans. You just find the right software, erase it and move on. You can't do such things with hardware because it's it's injected in there physically. So um, let's first talk about hardware Trojans. Um, Hardware Trojan refers to tampering of the design and uh, malicious circuitry being injected into into the design at the hardware level. Now, why would somebody want to do such a thing? Well, they may want to control chips remotely. They they may want to create kill switches to uh, disable chips remotely. They may want to create backdoors to leak information off the chip uh, while the chip is computing or communicating. So there are a variety of reasons why this can be done. And how can this happen? Well, I talked about chip design companies going to other chip design companies and buying blocks from them. It's already very difficult to verify what a design, whether a design block is doing what it's supposed to be doing. It's, it's a whole research field called functional verification. There are tens, hundreds of papers being published every year. It's a very difficult problem. Imagine how difficult it would be to verify whether the, the block is not doing anything additional compared to what it's supposed to be doing. And that's what I'm, I'm referring to Trojans, right? So it's a very difficult thing to detect Trojans coming inside uh, design blocks. The other source for these Trojans could be the fabrication facility, because you send your design to them for them to fabricate, but they could make small changes to the design and insert malicious circuitry into the chips. And we refer to them as hardware Trojans. So the next question is, you know, are these things real or fictional, right? That's what you must be thinking. Um, in our community, unfortunately, we, don't, we can't talk about a real proof, real hardcore proof where we say, hey, this chip, there was this Trojan injected in it, and we detected it. We can't talk about such things. People in our community you know, attribute to the fact that it's, it's typically damaging to the reputation of the company, so certain findings are swept under the carpet, et cetera. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. But in our community, we talk about anecdotal evidences. And about a decade back... Um, We refer to this story, real story, as source of hardware Trojans. Um, Country 1 attacking country 2 via a couple of jets. And then for whatever magical reason, the green dot on the radar uh, just disappears because the radar system is remotely shut down. Uh, It's simply because country, country two's radar system was not one that was built by them they just obtain that radar system from from another place. So we attribute this to hardware Trojans in our community. The other problem is counterfeiting. So, uh, and the most commonly found form of counterfeiting is people collecting these scrap boards from used devices, taking the chips out of those scrap boards, polishing them, making them look like brand new, and then binning them, sorting them, and selling them as brand new. So a lot of these used chips, whether they're working properly or not, they're sold as brand new. And we refer to them as fake, unauthentic counterfeit chips. This is a huge industry in certain parts of the world, and billions of dollars are, is, is lost every year because of counterfeiting. And about a decade back in the US, counterfeit Cisco network components were detected. And the problem back then was that these components were to be used in military applications, so FBI had to get involved, counterfeiters were sent to prison, and and back then the real concern was really not the profit that these counterfeiters were targeting, but rather whether these counterfeit chips had some backdoors in them, the Trojans. They were, FBI was mostly concerned about these Trojans. And then they did their analysis and they said that um, they didn't encounter any Trojan structures, but even today, there's a whole research field uh, working on Trojan detection. And we, we all know that it's a very difficult research problem um, to detect Trojans in, 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 a billions of, in billions of transistors. So the other problem is reverse engineering. Reverse engineering normally is not a problem. I mean, to learn about something, you reverse engineer. You take a product, and then you take it through steps, and you understand the design that led to that product. It's something normally good, And it's actually legal in the US to reverse engineer. There's nothing wrong with reverse engineering. The problem is when reverse engineering is misused to do bad things. And uh, reverse engineering in hardware security is the main enabler for other attacks, such as inserting Trojans or piracy. Because to insert a meaningful Trojan into a chip, you need to first understand what it's doing. You need to first understand its functionality. So you first reverse engineer, and then you insert a Trojan. Or, you can reverse engineer and copy somebody else's hardware uh, IP block, and then you create your own chips with slight modifications, right? So, how does this work? Um, You take a chip. You first open it up. Uh, You take out the die, the silicon die, inside the chip. This die has metal layers. So, what you do is you put the silicon under an optical microscope you take an image from the top metal layer, and then you need to peel off the top layer because you need images from individual layers. So you use some chemicals to peel it off, take the image from the next metal layer, peel it off, take the image, and then get all these images, stitch them together, do some processing, and you get the design schematic, the design that led to this to this chip. And if you want to misuse this, you can clone it, you can create your own chip, or you just study and understand what this chip is doing. Now, is this real, is this doable? There is a company in California called Chipworks. You pay them $10,000, and then you take your competitor's chip to them, and they would reverse engineer that chip for you. And then they would give you the design schematic for that chip. The reason why you would want to do that is because maybe your competitor is stealing your hardware IP using it in their, in their chip designs. So if you, if you see that, then you sue them, right? So, uh, reverse engineering is used for detecting piracy if I mean at least when it's used legally and when it's used illegally you do other things like Trojan insertion and piracy. And uh, in our great facilities in the ERB with the great equipment that we have and the great people that we have, we took our little attempt to reverse engineer chips. We're you know, far from realizing it but at least Um, With the help of James, who is here, we were able to mill into the chip and take some cross-sectional images. Here you see the different metal layers from from the cross-sectional point of view. And we also put the chips under an optical microscope and we took some images. The problem is these images are taken from the top-level view, so the top metal layer is blocking our view, so we can't get to the bottom layers. We don't have yet the equipment to peel off layers, we don't have the chemicals for that, but we hope that we'll get all that equipment and uh, we'll have reverse engineering capabilities fully, hopefully soon. So to put everything into perspective, in this picture basically what I'm showing is different abstraction layers of a computing platform, like your computer. At the bottom layer, the foundation is the hardware, the chip, the board. And then on top of that, you have the firmware, which is the programmable part of your hardware. You can configure your hardware into doing certain operations by programming it. That's firmware. On top of it, you have the operating system, and on top of it, you have all your apps software running together. So when I talk about the this uh, Xbox 360 hack, it was basically an attack uh, deployed at the firmware level. I you must have heard about this WannaCry ransomware attack. It encrypts all your files and asks for Bitcoins to give your files back to you. Um, This was exploiting vulnerabilities at the operating system level. And all the threats that I mentioned, uh, from Trojans to counterfeits to piracy, these are happening at the bottommost layer, the hardware layer. To me, the most important takeaway point from this entire presentation is as follows. If you want this entire computational platform to be secure, you need to make sure that your foundation is secure, and that is your hardware. If the hardware is compromised, no matter whether you have the strongest, most secure operating system that is running on your computer, you can't talk about a trustworthy system. So um, that's what hardware security field is dealing with, securing the, the foundations of this platform. So the next question is, what are the things that can be done? We know that this is a highly distributed flow. Uh, Chips are designed by using third party blocks. Uh, They're fabricated in some place, tested in another place. What can I do as a chip designer? How can I make sure that the chips that I design end up being trustworthy despite this distributed flow? So you, you need to first ask yourself as a chip designer, who do I trust and who do I not trust? Um, do I trust the Foundry uh, that I'm working with? Do I trust the end user? Should Apple trust you, the iPhone users? In my opinion, they shouldn't, because anybody could open up the phone, take out the chip, and do reverse engineering to to, uh, possibly pirate the hardware IP. So based on the questions, you pick a technique. If you trust everybody, you have no problem. You're happy. But um, in our research, we don't. And uh, what I'll talk about, although we do research in various different things, I'll talk about logic locking. That is a solution to protect yourself against untrusted FABs as well as untrusted end users. So just to recap, the problem was as follows. You are a chip designer. You use a bunch of design software to create your chip. And then you send it to a FAB that you don't necessarily trust. FAB could do evil things like inserting Trojans. Temp, they tamper with your chips, possibly. And also, even if they don't, the chips, they make it to the end users, and the end users could open them up and basically could possibly pirate your design. Right? These are the threats out there. Logic locking is basically an additional software step that the chip designers need to go through. And the end result of that would be basically putting in place locks at the hardware level. So these locks become a part of the design. They actually, under a microscope, you cannot physically distinguish these locks from the rest of the design. It's just like transistors, again. And then it's this locked design that you send to a fab that you don't necessarily trust. And this fab now produces your locked design chips, and the chips that come out of fabrication are locked. Locked means these chips won't work until you activate them, until you unlock them. So that's one form of security. And the other thing is, if somebody opens up these chips, they would encounter these locks. And without knowing the secret key that I'll talk about next, they won't really be able to tell whether this part of the chip is doing this functionality or that functionality. So that's, this will be an ambiguity or obfuscation from, to, um, to reverse engineers. So what you do is, once the chip comes out locked from fabrication, you need to load the secret key on the memory of the chip. Who knows the secret key? Only I do. The chip designers. Okay? The fab doesn't know. The end users don't know. So I load the secret key on the chip to unlock the chip, and that's when the chip becomes operational. Then it does what it's supposed to be doing. So this form of protection is straightforward in the sense that you are enabling only authorized used use of these chips. Whoever knows the secret key can use these chips, otherwise the chips are useless. So for instance, things that we hear. um, I'm a chip designer. I send my design to a fab, ask them to fabricate a million parts. What if they fabricate two million parts and sell excess parts in black market to make profit? Right? With this solution in place, those additional parts will be useless because they will be locked, and without the secret key, they won't be able to make any use of those additional chips. The other thing is that these locks are part of the design. So, uh, without the knowledge of the secret key, this is introducing ambiguity to reverse engineers. They won't be able to fully understand the functionality of of these chips without knowing the secret key. So, we took this research effort and we decided to create a proof of concept uh, very recently. And what we did is we went to a microprocessor design company called ARM. It's a UK based microprocessor design company. We asked uh, from them uh, to give us the uh, microprocessor architecture information so that we can actually create a chip out of it. And they did. This is an open source microprocessor. They do it to, you know, they give it to all researchers who ask for it. So they gave us the architecture and then we ran all the design steps in addition We ran our own software too to introduce locks to this microprocessor design. So we created a locked version of this microprocessor design and we sent it off to a fabrication facility in Singapore. Um, The fab belongs to Global Foundries. Uh, Side note, Global Foundries is the number two chip fabrication facilities in the world and it's owned by the UAE. So this tells you that uh, UAE is heavily investing into electronics, which is great for researchers like myself. So anyways, we got the chips back. Uh, These chips are locked out of fabrication, and we basically uh, loaded the keys to them to activate them. Uh, Let me just play a little video that you may have seen outside, maybe 10 times already, but... Again, let me acknowledge the great job done by our uh, Public Relations Office. Um, And also, let me just run a little demo that tells you what these chips are doing, or what they're supposed to be doing. So in this demo, we have two chips. One of them is locked, and the other one is unlocked. The locked one is just the chip that we received from uh, the foundry. It doesn't have the secret key loaded on its memory. We're going to ask this chip to print CCS on on the screen, one character at a time. But because it's locked, it will not perform the duty. It will hang. The other chip is unlocked. It's been loaded with the secret key after fabrication. So when we ask uh, the chip to uh, print CCS Hello Ahlan, it is printing it um, on the LED display. So, so this demo basically shows you the authorized use of, of these chips. If you know the secret key, you can make it; uh, you can get it to work. Otherwise, the chips won't work. So, in general, this uh, line of research, and this applies to cybersecurity in general, it's uh, it's a blue team, red team kind of an effort. Sometimes you act like the hackers; you break the defenses out there. And write a paper on it, and sometimes you come up with a defense and basically wait for others to attack and wait for others to break your defense and come up with a with a better defense next time. And we've been on both sides both sides of the uh, fence before. And just uh, logic locking, for instance, this this has been the evolution of uh, this whole field. And uh, you know the original idea was from. Rice University, University of Michigan. In 2008, they came up with the first logic locking solution. And then four years later, we came up with the first attack that broke their defense. And ever since, in the last few years, there have been attacks, defenses, attacks, defenses in an iterative fashion. This is, this is the nature of our research. And very recently, we came up with this solution, SFLL. I can claim that nobody can break it until somebody comes and breaks it, obviously. Um, but, you know, what we're saying is we're kind of more confident compared to our previous solutions that this will be unhackable or unbreakable, not because it got into a good conference and it was peer-reviewed and all, that doesn't mean much, but because we have mathematical definitions, mathematical theorems uh, backing the security of our solutions. So, um, I don't expect anybody to understand these theorems, obviously, but what it means is, what we claim, is that if you have, and we have in this chip, a 128-bit secret key, uh, using the current uh, state-of-the-art equipment, the best ones out there, current capabilities, it takes a very long time to break it. It's a very long time. So, But again, you know, somebody thinks outside the box, you make certain assumptions and they go around those assumptions and they may possibly break it. Just to make sure, just to add to our confidence that this is unhackable, what we just did very recently is we set up a platform where we give all the information about this chip to potential hackers out there. So we say, this is the details of the design all the details of course our locks are in there and they don't know the secret key so we're hiding the secret key but everything else is available to the hackers we're also giving them virtual access to the to the chip so that they can apply inputs collect outputs they could do that analysis too through this platform the idea is to see whether somebody with this information and this is the same amount, same information that you give to the untrusted fabs right so we expect and we 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 Expect that nobody will be able to break it, but still, we put up this platform to see uh, whether that is indeed true. Because crowdsourcing is the best way to test your security. And the next thing that we're planning to do is we recently got uh, a grant from DARPA and they're, they're inviting us to turn this research into deployment. And we're a four university team. Uh, our job is to take this logic locking and turn it into an actual uh, solutions that can be deployed. So um, is this all academic practice? Uh, The answer is no. Um, These are the three companies, multi-billion dollar companies, Mentor Graphics, Cadence, and Synopsys. These companies provide software to chip design companies. So they're actually software companies that help people design chips. One of these three giants, Mentor Graphics, introduced their version, their logic locking solution, very recently. And the, the tool is in the market now. But this is a solution that, that we broke five years ago. So they're kind of behind academia. Uh, but this is their first attempt to, you know, to actually take a shot and introduce a tool to the market. We don't yet know whether the other two companies are planning to introduce their solutions or not. But you know, the area is receiving a lot of attention and there is market demand for these. So um, before I conclude my talk, let me acknowledge my team. They're they're here. Uh, The current members are here, the past members too. I'd like to acknowledge them. They've been doing all the heavy lifting, uh, developing great ideas, implementing them. I've been the spokesperson. And and I also like to acknowledge our sponsors one more time. And uh, if you'd like to learn more about these things, you can visit our website. Uh, there are tutorials, papers, patent applications, everything is available. It depends on how technical you want to go. It's all there and you can also send me emails. I can provide you with more material as well.
0: You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www. NYUAD.NYU.EDU slash institute